0: Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I'm Joel. I hope you're doing well. And just in case you didn't know what this podcast is about and you're tuning in, it's for coaches, for all kinds of people who are doing deep transformative work with their clients, whether that's individuals or groups. And so today I'm really delighted to bring Ann Weiser Cornell to you. Actually, I kind of thought, why did it take me so long to invite Anne onto the podcast? Because I read her book, Focusing in clinical practice a couple of years back and it's exceptional. It's full of amazing distinctions about doing deep transformative work. So as I just named in the title, Anne is um, a teacher of focusing and which is a phenomenological practice, really exploring the flow of life and what we'll talk about today a lot, this idea of a felt sense. And so we'll talk about what is focusing We'll talk about why it's so effective. We'll talk about this kind of principle of the flow of life and readiness that empowers this phenomenological practice of focusing. We'll talk about Anne's journey, how it transformed her into being able to write a book when she had writer's block. I think it's a beautiful articulation of the process. And we'll talk about how do you help your clients tune into felt sense and particularly when they get stuck, you know, what kind of things can you do to help them tune in and and kind of tap into this forward-flowing flow of life? (laughs) Anyway, so I'll just say a few more words about Anne. Like I said, she wrote this book, Focusing in Clinical Practice, The Essence of Change, and I recommend that highly. She is an educator, a worldwide authority in focusing... And she was trained by Eugene Gendlin, who is the main originator of that work. She's written several books, including the one I named. And uh, she's been teaching focusing around the world since 1980 and has developed a system and technique of her own called Inner Relationship Focusing. So you can find out more about Anne at her website, focusingresources.com. So if you like this podcast, please share it. I really appreciate that. I want to get the word out to all you beautiful coaches around the world so you can benefit from hearing from people like Anne. And if you're not on our mailing list, you want to know more about us, join our community and see our trainings. You can head to coachesrising.com and just look around there. All right. So let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Anne Weiser Cornell. So Anne, I'm really delighted to be with you today. How's things with you?
1: All is well, except for needing to stay indoors and be careful.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: But life in general is just fine and I'm fine.
0: Good, good, yeah. Um, well, I just was saying, sharing with you in our little check-in how brilliant I thought your book was, uh, the book here that focusing in clinical practice and... Uh, yeah, as I was saying, for me, when I read it today, I just felt the excitement to be able to share some of the ideas of that book with our audience today. And of course, you're steeped in the world of focusing. And um, so I want to kind of start at the higher level and then focus in on some of the the moves or the, the distinctions that focusing offers that can help our clients transform. So I guess the first place to start, and a question you've probably been asked many times, but could you just say to us what focusing is for you, and especially this this idea of the felt experience, felt sense? Yeah. Sorry.
1: Well, focusing is a way of referring to a particular kind of process that can occur, for example, in a client, or for it can also occur in a person doing a creative project, writing a poem, painting a picture. It can occur in any of us all day long if we're making a decision, if we're sensing what should be our ideal future. So it's a, it's a process that can occur. And then it's also a name for the facilitation of that process. So if I, but I consider myself someone who helps clients do focusing in pursuit of their goals and those goals might include making a decision or sensing a life path what's next for me making making a life transition being able to recover from a loss in order to find one's resilience again so all kinds of things that people need to do and do naturally focusing is a process that can help you Do that. When I say it occurs naturally, I like to make the point that my teacher, my mentor, Eugene Gendlin, discovered focusing through research. It isn't something he made up, it's something he first of all observed. And what he observed was that people who were in a change process, and specifically in psychotherapy, tended to do better in that in psychotherapy and so on, if at some point they would pause and sense directly what they were experiencing at that moment. Could be a tightness in the throat, could be a sense of anxiety, could be a feeling that there's something I want to say, but I can't quite say it well. And that sense of... Being at the edge of being able to articulate something that you're aware of, but not able to put into words well. That moment of realizing or having the experience that you couldn't quite put into words very well what you were feeling, that was the correlation to successful change. If people didn't do that, they didn't tend to change successfully. So people who just talked articulately <laughs> those weren't the ones that did well in psychotherapy people had to at some point say wait a minute i don't know if i can say this very well it's um mm, well it's right here uh um <laughs> they had to become what you might call inarticulate those were the successful ones and he was also a philosopher he realized that what people were doing reminded him of something discussed in phenomenology and that is a concept called experiencing that our moment-to-moment experience of the phenomena of life called phenomenology is more basic than our thoughts about our life our concepts and thoughts come later first we have our experiencing itself. So he recognized that's what people were doing. They were pausing to feel and then articulate their experiencing. The focusing is a way of pausing, getting in touch with and articulating your directly felt experiencing.
0: Hmm. Um, what Could you say something about the, the philosophy of the flow of life that can open up as we begin to experience our phenomenological experience. I I think like we can begin to, you know, um, put, put why that's talk about why that's so effective and important as human beings to do that.
1: You've asked what I think is the key question, which is why does it work? And why do people move in a direction that takes them into their fuller life anybody who helps people in the process of healing and change psychotherapists coaches and so on is aware that there is some kind of life energy in people and gene Genlin put it this way he said life wants to live in his philosophy which he spent his life developing called The Philosophy of the Implicit says that nobody, nothing alive simply is. Everything that's alive is and, that an object like a pen simply is, it's an object. We can pick it up and put it down and it doesn't really change. But a living being is always in the process of becoming. We aren't just what we are. We're also what we're becoming. And that our organism has included in its awareness, the sense of what's next and is on its way to what's next. Now he used simple examples like breathing. When you inhale, your body is on its way to exhaling. Every inhale is like a readiness to exhale. And every exhale is a readiness to inhale. Another example he would use is being hungry. When you're hungry, your body has a readiness to take in nurturance, which usually means eating, but could also be intravenous feeding. So hunger, is the state of implying eating. It's a readiness for eating. And people who are born into this life are born with those readinesses. The the implicit process is already in us. A number of people have studied something they call uh, and created a, a method they call attachment theory that has resulted from observations of caregivers and babies result of those observations is that babies are born ready to be nurtured, but also held securely and also gazed at and also delighted in. And if these things don't happen, babies don't thrive, it doesn't necessarily kill them. But they don't do well on every level mentally, physically, and so on. Furthermore, the baby is born into an interactive system. And so not only is the baby ready to be treated a certain way, very spe- in very specific ways, but the caregiver system, the parents usually, the mother usually, is also ready. Ideally, if there hasn't been some trauma or hurt or blockage, the mother is as ready as the baby to treat the baby in certain ways. I remember meeting my granddaughter recently for the first time and worried I wouldn't love her like I was supposed to. She took one look at me (laughs) and (laughs) I was done, gone. Cupid's arrow pierced my heart in love forever. So there's some kind of mutual uh, interactive readiness. Another maxim that Gentlin would say is interaction is first. We're not born separate and then we somehow find a way to get together. We're born in an interactive system. So living beings are in an interactive system from the start, and always their body life process implies the next steps. Now, the next steps don't always happen. But when something the body implies doesn't happen, the body registers that all the way from ouch to trauma that can result in dissociation, frozenness, and so on. So our readiness for what needs to come next then gives meaning to what actually comes next. If my body is ready, reach for my parents, and my body's ready for them to reach back, pick me up, cuddle me, and that doesn't happen, It's not just nothing. It's not neutral. It's the very fact that I was ready for that, that that would have been right to happen next that gives meaning to what my very young body may experience as rejection or abandonment, which is something I may then carry with me until there is a healing process for that stoppage. So the reason why a process like focusing works is that the body is already carrying these implied knowings about what's right next. And it's also carrying the stoppages about what hasn't happened when it needed to, but can still be healed.
0: I think that's really beautifully articulated and a very profound idea very hopeful idea that you're sharing with us or, or and and feels so resonant with me and you already spoke to how i think um we can um maybe get disconnected from that sense of readiness through our upbringing through our you know as we grow through the years with our parents and society and i i just wondered if you could say a bit more about um why how you feel like we may be disconnected from this this innate sense of readiness because i'm also thinking about you know in our cultures we've tended to become you know disconnected from our felt sense our embodied life privileging the rational mind which is a beautiful thing but over privileging it i just wonder if you could speak to like how you see us in relationship to to accessing that that um you know that innate readiness like are we are we um, desperately in need of reclaiming that more or, you know, yeah. Just so <laughs>
1: we <that's>, are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Look at, the, look at the mess we're in as human beings on this earth. We've ignored our, our bodies and we've ignored the earth itself and so many messages that we would have been receiving, but, uh, we've been living in a culture that was based on not noticing not noticing the cries of the earth the cries of the animals the cries of oppressed people no we just can't pay attention to that I'm sad about it and I think that that's one reason why grief work is going to be is an essential part of getting back in touch with life energy because as part of that process we're going to have to face the fact that we've not paid attention And we need to grieve for the losses that have come there. Our bodies are still available. That's the good news. And I do think this is a hopeful vision, which is that, yes, there are losses, but as beings, we're not permanently damaged. We have always the potential for resilience and recovery. Mm -hmm. I think that's basically what I'd say about
0: that yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and maybe we could focus in on the felt sense more because I know it's easy to for me like some to think it's sensations in the body or just an emotion but you know as I hear you speaking it's much more than that you know it's it's a Well, What is a felt sense?
1: Because Jenlin, Jenlin coined the term felt sense, and now it's all over the place. Many, many methods and people are talking about the felt sense, not using it the way he used it. He wanted us to give a name to a particular kind of embodied sense that points to or is from or of the, the sense of the next step coming when your body knows your next step in life whether it's the, whether it's to eat something or to get a hug or to create a masterpiece your body has a sense of that before you have it able in, in a state where you could articulate it before you have it cognitively so that's one reason why artists people who work at the creative edge know this realm pretty well and anybody who's written a poem or written a song or tried to paint or sketch can recognize this feeling of i know there's something next i know it's not finished or i know this isn't quite right but i can't quite say what would be right that he also Jen Lin also calls this an edge because there's a sense that there's something there, but the articulation of it, whether in words, pictures, gestures, and so on, the articulation of it hasn't come. But then when the articulation of it comes, there's a relief. <sighs> and you can even experience this when you've real you've got something you want to say, and you're trying to explain it to a friend, and you know you you haven't said it yet. There's sort of that incomplete, frustrating. That's not it yet. And if you've got a nice patient friend, they'll stay with you until you find, oh, I think I've got it. And then you say it and your body will give you relief right at that moment. Ah, that's it. That process of reaching for something that's at the edge of articulation is essential to life itself. It's something we pay a special attention to and focusing. Well, the sense that there is something and you haven't quite put it into words would be a felt sense. And so it's not just any body sensation. It's not just any emotional sensation. It's a particular kind of sensation that often can come when we pause. One of the exercises I give my students is it, it, you have, let's say you have a, some person in your life, a relationship with somebody that's very complex, positive, negative, you, you love to see them, you don't wanna see them, pause right now. It's everything you already know about that person. Pause right now and let your body give you the feel, the whole thing. Don't try to put it into words. Just let yourself sort of let that person come into your awareness. And it takes a little while. It doesn't just come instantly. And and then it doesn't have words yet. And then you might try out a word like it's confused or heavy. And then those words don't fit. This, the felt sense that you have, can say yes or no to certain ways of expressing it. So The felt sense is, Jenlin once said to me, the felt sense is rare. People think they have them all the time and every day. No, you actually have to be in a certain state of body and mind. You have to take time, pause deliberately, ask yourself, what's the feel of that? Or what's my take on that? Or how does that sit with me? And then wait. And you, what you do when you help somebody do focusing is you help them get a felt
0: sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about the, you kind of spoke into it, but the attitude that can help us to cultivate that felt sense. You know, I, as you as I hear you speak, it sounds like, you know, there's a certain kind of presence or curiosity that's needed in relationship to what's happening inside of us. And then I want to add a uh, just the it, it's this question that I'll ask afterwards, but to bookmark it, the the importance of what you described of connecting the felt sense with the word and what's happening in that dynamic. But we'll go to the first one first, which was. The yeah, first yeah. one
1: is the attitude yeah. or the, or the environment. Right. There's an environment yeah. that makes a felt sense likely. And that environment is, you could say the qualities of openness allowing, acceptance, non-judgmental, curious. And I can have these qualities in myself. I can also help another person have these qualities toward themselves. And that's one of the key abilities in facilitating focusing in another person is helping them have those inner qualities of curiosity, openness, acceptance. You might think of a felt sense as shy. Maybe it doesn't come if it feels like it's going to be judged as soon as it comes. Like, what? That's nothing. Could that be anything important? <laughs> if that's going to be the environment it's coming into, it won't come. So, yes, the the environment is very important.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe before you answer the second question, and because you you t- um, talk in your book about being with our experience, um, in a sense, like there's a disidentification from our experience, which allows a, a certain way of being with. And this word something, I think you said it's my fa- one of my favorite words in focusing. So maybe you could say something about that, okay. too.
1: Well, that, I'll talk about this, uh, what we call presence language. And so we can give the word pre- presence, the name presence or self in presence to this environment, that allows a felt sense to be more likely. So presence language is something that I observed people like Jean Genlin using and because my training is in linguistics, I have a special attention to the language people use and how it can facilitate or not the process that they're hoping to happen. So what I observed was that you could use the language something in me or something in you to step slightly back from any felt experience for example if i'm upset i'm my i'm i'm filled with a feeling of upset i'm ready to take some action yell at somebody punch somebody but if i want to get to know better what is this upset in me and maybe help it take a few steps of change, then I want to step back a little from upset rather than being caught up in it and ready to act out of it. One way to step back a little is to use the language of something in me. So I'm upset. Something in me is upset. And as soon as I say something in me is upset, it invites my attention as if I'm a You could say observer, or I'm sitting next to, or being with, the feel of the upset in me, the something in me that's upset. And now I've disidentified. So I'm upset, I'm identified. Something in me is upset. I'm disidentified. And from that position of getting to know the feeling of upset, I have the potential to explore, to get to know, to find out, to be curious, to discover. And the feeling of upset itself can evolve. It can become what it needs to be next. What we understand about emotions, and the word emotion contains motion in it, is that every every feeling, every emotion is on its way to something else. If you have a feeling that hangs on and it's there week after week, month after month, I'm still angry with my brother. (laughs) I would take a look at angry and not in an intellectual analyzing way, but in a more bodily way. So something in me is still angry at my brother, huh? And that language enables a felt sense to form of the feeling called angry at my brother. But now we're getting over to the second question, because why is it then important to articulate what the feeling is? So what'll happen is, let me come back to my example of upset. I'm upset, something in me is upset. Saying the word something in me is upset invites curiosity and it invites me to feel where and how I feel that in my body right now. Okay, it's like a clenching. My fists are clenching. Okay. And I'm staying with that longer. I'm sensing it further. Now I'm now I'm sensing a kind of burning in my chest. Now I say to that feeling, I sense you there. I'm with you. And now there's a sense of something under it. There's a sense of something like hurt under the upset. Ah, I say, now I'm sensing something in me is hurt. So there's an evolutionary process that's very natural. Once we are able to be with how we feel, a compassionate observer, you could say. And the articulation of what we feel then is part of the process of evolution as it shows itself to us, we then articulate what it's like, and it can then take its next steps.
0: And so as we do that, we're kind of tuning, we're opening up to that flow of life that you described, that that yeah. readiness that wants to
1: and it makes blossom. The, It makes the next steps more likely. Where we can get stuck if we stay identified with that. I'm just angry. And if we we sort of keep telling ourselves a story about it. I'm angry with him. He did that. That's what he did. He shouldn't have done that. Instead of being in direct contact with the feel of it, the feel of the angry or the upset or whatever it is, sensing how it is for it, that allows it to take its next steps. Whereas this sort of, uh, if we're separate from the feeling, but we're just repeating Mm -hmm. to ourselves. Our analysis or story about it, it's a recipe for staying stuck for sometimes years and years.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I, a distinction I would love to put to you is because I also read in your book and see in my clients the difference. It's what you're talking about now, where they're talking about something and um, then they drop into the feeling of it. So, you know, maybe they're feeling sad and they kind of speak from the sadness and how integrating that can be or you know how how different that is and so what I'm asking is on the one hand we're talking about disidentifying from things but also uh, in a sense I'm wondering about the role of of like speaking from something or you know like 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 owning it more
1: right being in touch with it so I see what you mean we're both just we're disidentifying but we're also embodying the feelings, because if, because one of the ways people handle feelings, everybody had to learn how to handle feelings and we rarely got any help with that. So we, when we were younger, we learned how to distract ourselves, go play a game, go read or, or hit somebody or then to intellectualize, to get into uh, try to talk ourselves out of feelings no you don't feel that way you feel this way said my mother <laughs> <laughs> so there's all these ways of not feeling and i think this storytelling well this is how i feel and this is what happened and this is how, this is probably how, why i felt that way and it it takes people nowhere but it is a very well-traveled pathway and so it puts us as practitioners in the position that we both want to help people feel more, and then we wanna help them be with the feelings of more. Now, it's it hasn't always gone that way. There are some methods that simply wanna help people feel more, uh, have catharsis. The theory be- behind those methods is that what's missing is being able to embody feelings, period. If you don't embody feelings, you won't get anywhere. If you do embody feelings, things get better. Uh, The experience of my friends and myself with methods that are purely cathartic is, as one friend of mine put it, it takes you apart, but it doesn't put you back together again. You can always cry more about that scene where your mother rejected you, There's always a source of tears there. There's not a... Some methods seem to believe that we have a certain amount of tears and once we cry them, we're going to be fine. No, it doesn't seem to work that way. We don't have a water tank inside us filled with a finite amount of tears. So what I'm saying is that the, the two processes together of both embodying feelings and being with them and being able to give company or presence to our feeling self those two together are needed and in, and in terms of embodying feelings it really needs to be the here and now feeling and that's really key when i give seminars for therapists, I noticed that one of the things they have been taught to say to their clients is, and how did that make you feel? And my response is, let's be interested in how they feel now. I'm not very interested in how they felt then. Because people can talk, 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 talk about how they felt back then. But how is it now? As you remember that, as you remember what happened then, how is it now? And the body is so useful if you want to help people get in touch with a presently felt emotion that may not be easy to articulate. It's very, very empowering to help people feel their bodies. That's where we're going to feel what's here and now. But the body is always in the present moment. It Mm. contains elements of the past and it leans toward the future. But if you want to find the here and now, go in the body.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, I think this is, again, like we're getting to a profound place, really, in a way, very simple, practical place. But um, I, I wonder for you, and you're already speaking into this, but what do you think is taking place there when you allow yourself to feel it in the body, but also um, you can be with it? You know, you're describing that dual kind of process because it seems like presence is a kind of healing or integrating factor in a way, but I'm just curious, what do you think is happening there that allows transformation to take place? And in a way, like, how are you holding what transformation is?
1: We'll come back to that life wants to live story, that anything alive is a knowing of its next steps, that takes us to the philosophy of healing and change that we don't have, we never have to tell our clients what to do and we never have to intervene in their lives and guide them from a damaged way of being to a more healthy way of being. What they need is a kind of company or presence so that what are the next steps of life for them can emerge. So, the quality of company, the quality of presence, we've talked before about it being it has elements of curiosity, being non-judgmental, safe, allowing, accepting, even loving, self-loving. There's a kind of trust involved as well, that there is forward life energy here. I'm not gonna go inside and find only damage and badness. I'm going to find the seeds of life. It's going to be like going into a garden in the springtime and seeing a green shoot begin to emerge from the soil. That's what our life process is. And that what we need to give it in order for it to live forward is presence, company. In, In practical terms, that may include saying back to people what they say so that we're not adding anything, but we're completely respecting and allowing what is emerging. You know? So, what is the what is the process that we're trusting here? We're trusting that presently felt life has its own knowing of its next steps. It's not really a mystery why life changes in a positive direction. I find it more mysterious why it gets stuck. And as somebody who struggled with writer's block for maybe 20 years, I I think it's fascinating why people get into loops inside where there's something they say they want, but they don't get it and they don't do it and they don't do the things that would bring it about. But even those loops, even those places where we seem to repeat something that doesn't help us, that hurts us instead have a kind of life energy if held in a certain way, in a certain kind of trusting way. Well, we can give that environment to our clients, but I think crucially we can help our clients give that environment to ourselves. And that's where this work is going. It's helping our clients be toward themselves the kind of environment that allows their own life to keep moving forward. I hope that was, yeah. I hope I addressed yeah. your question.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> and do, um, Would you find a lot of you, because you write about self as presence, this idea of self as presence, as and I think you've been speaking to that in a way already, but that when I hear you talk about empowering your clients to do this work by themselves, I can imagine after some time people kind of adopt or embody a, a, a focusing like way as a way of being in life, you know, that life can then they become more spacious and yeah. more present because yeah. it's a way of living. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's a way of living. But wouldn't it be great to live our lives from this place of accepting, allowing open aware doesn't mean we'd never get angry but i think we'd mainly get angry at injustice (laughs) rather than based on our old unhealed hurts we call it by the way self in presence it's a capitalized jargon term developed by myself with barbara mcgavin who's my main co-creator of uh, the methods we've been using over the last 26 or seven years to really articulate these change processes, and what in, enables them to happen. So can we live our lives as self in presence? More and more, more and more. And it involves being more present in the moment, more open to the other people that we're with, more able to take risks because we're honoring what it is we're we need to be safe. What kinds of things? It's a, yeah, it's a ideally it's a way of living. Hmm.
0: And um, do you mind me asking, like you mentioned you had writer's block and that we can get in these loops, you know, where we and that's actually what fascinates you, how do we get stuck? What enabled you to move forward in that in that sense? Well, I don't know I if love, you'd be willing to share it.
1: I love telling my writer's block story because uh I I I learned something that has been valuable ever since this was, I was in my mid forties and I was already a teacher of focusing, a facilitator of focusing. I really, really felt the rightness. I felt the inner rightness of writing a book. And the last thing I'd written was my PhD dissertation about 20 years before. Written outlines for books, and I had taken writing workshops, and I tried just about everything I could think of. Waking up earlier, I'd get only so far, and then I'd get stuck. It was frustrating. I called myself bad names lazy, hopeless. Finally, one day, I went to my meeting, my weekly meeting with my focusing partner. Focusing partnership is one way that we can build focusing into our lives with peer relationships. So I had a focusing partner, which meant we met every week and exchanged the time. Half the time was my focusing, half the time was her focusing. And when the other person's focusing, one is present and ref- listening and making a space of non-judgmental curiosity. So I told Bonnie, my focusing partner, I am just at the end of my rope about my writing. I'm going to try something today that's just, I never thought of doing this. It's just kind of wild. But I realize I'm, I so much want to write. I've tried everything I can think of might it be possible that there's a part of me that doesn't want to write? I think I'd gotten that idea from a friend who did Gestalt therapy, that there could be an underdog, a part that doesn't want to. I said, I don't feel that there's a part that doesn't want to write. I just feel like I want to write and I'm frustrated because I can't. But what I want to do today is try inviting a part that doesn't want to write. If it is around here somewhere, I hope it will show up. She says, okay, we'll try that. So I closed my eyes, felt in my body, and then I felt like I was sending the message out somewhere. If there's a part of me that doesn't want to write, I would love to get to know it better. Faith. And then I just waited with awareness in my body. And what I began to be aware of, a couple minutes of nothing, and then very slowly I began to be aware of a, of a feeling in my body, completely impossible to describe. But I was like a, I still can't describe it. It was like a hunching or bending forward or, or crouching or something like that but just in one place in my chest. So I took a little longer. And slowly I began to get the image of my whole body kind of leaning forward or leaning down. Stayed with it longer. I began to get the feeling of, of ducking, like lowering my whole body so that I would miss being hit by something. Okay, i stay with it longer. Then I began to get an image of a target, one of those big colored circles. And I was in front of the target and somebody was shooting. (laughs) Then I began and I stayed with it longer. So one of the things that's key here is to not jump into interpreting. There's such a big temptation. What does that mean? Let's think about that. But I'd learned by that time, years of focusing, to just wait because the next step is gonna come from the process, not from my thinking about it. It's okay, I feel like I'm ducking. Something in me is ducking, and it's like being on a firing range down by the targets. Let's see what happens next. I'm, hello, I'm, I'm here with you, what's next? Then I began to get a kind of memory of being a child with my father i was in a hallway and he was coming toward me down the hallway and he was verbally shooting at me oh yeah who do you think you are and my whole experience of a sarcastic father who didn't think i ought to think very well of myself any time i wanted to shine or show off he would shoot me shoot me down And the the whole thing just came open, like there is something in me that doesn't want to write, I realized, because it doesn't want me to be shot at by my father. And that brought this bodily relief. (sighs) My father, at that point, when I was in my mid-40s, wasn't even living, but the experience of going through that in my childhood was still being carried by my body. And the relief of realizing that there had been something in me that didn't want to write was enormous. And from that moment on, writing became easier. That wasn't the last session about the writer's block, but it was uh, an important one. And another thing that changed my life was the whole idea that you can, you can understand that our life, our stuck life patterns can be understood as involving parts, the part that didn't want me to write was a way of disidentifying, but also coming into contact because it wasn't something I was aware of as a felt experience, but clearly it was operating in my life. So maybe there's a part that doesn't want to write, allowed me to bring into awareness something that I hadn't been aware of before at a felt level. And then to do this process of allowing, waiting, letting the next step emerge from that in such a way that it could then move forward instead of staying stuck.
0: Yeah. I I just get this feeling that you could spend years and years trying to fix that writer's block from a particular place that I think a lot of us are trying to fix our problems from, you know, like different strategies and techniques to get through it. But that you were able to create that space where... A profound experience began to unfold for you. And I like the way you described it as like, I wasn't like, I didn't want to interpret what was happening. And, and it's kind of mysterious to me in a way that where does this come from? You know, like it starts to unfold without you directing it. And yet its potency is far greater than if you were to, you know, follow a five step process. And so I think the story you share really beautifully articulates the power that this kind of approach can have and how deep it can go. I'm I'm curious if you felt like you moved into relationship with that part more intimately too. I did. Yeah, I did.
1: Uh, More of a compassionate relationship where I might've seen it before as my enemy, a saboteur inside. Hmm. Instead, I understood that that was something in me that had been trying to protect me from an experience that thought would damage me. And I didn't have to, explain anything to it. Just understanding it as something that had been trying to help me shifted the whole inner dynamic. I then could choose to write. It didn't have to change. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the key experiences that led Barbara McGavin and I to develop a whole method of working with challenging life issues. Because a few years later, I realized I had been drinking alcohol addictively And I realized that right at the time that she and I were about to teach three focusing workshops, one after the other, in England and Ireland. So when I confessed to her that I realized I'd been using alcohol addictively and I didn't know what to do, I felt really ashamed and helpless and worried that it was going to start again. She said, well, let's do focusing. And the sessions we then had sort of in all the free time when we weren't actually teaching led with a beginning of a of a intensive exploration into what's going on when some parts of us and in this case it was a part that wanted to drink can be out of awareness and yet operating in our life and what kind of thing do we need to do what kind of environment do we need to create so that that can shift and very quickly she started bringing into the sessions her own most stuck area, which was her her, uh, depression, which occasionally became suicidal. So my addiction to alcohol, her suicidal depression, that was our laboratory for this deep inner work. If we can make it work for that, because we were adding things to the focusing that we had learned that had to do with being able to invite parts that were just implied rather than that were already felt. And the people in the workshops we were teaching started asking us questions that we could only answer from our new understanding. And so that is an amazing process. It, it really was what I'd always wanted to do, which was really discover what is what gets in the way of change. Why do we? Why are we stuck? Why do we stay stuck for years? And what can mm. what can release that?
0: Yeah, and, and do you feel that in your process there was a kind of welcoming in of frozen something that had been frozen, um, and that in order to cope with that thing that had been, you know frozen out of experience or however we want to name that, then you are drinking alcohol to cope with it, to tolerate, which is an intelligence in that. You know, but then um, I'm curious, like there's this sense of life energy being freed that was being used to hold that down and then that could be freed to live life more fully, for example, writing a a book. Like
1: Well yes. Yes. All of that is right, Joel. I agree with everything. So Uh, But it is interesting, what I discovered when I was able to turn non-judgmentally toward the part that wanted to drink, I discovered, as you say, that there was a, a function of not feeling something that otherwise that part of me felt would have been damaging or dangerous. These feelings themselves can't be allowed to come, so let's do some drinking instead. But on the other hand, it also functioned to help me access states and abilities that I wasn't somehow able to access directly. So I asked the part that wanted to drink, what do you want for me? And what do you want for me became one of our inner questions. And what it wanted for me was to be able to relax quickly, to be able to be creative, to be able to be in a state of flow, to to be in a, ba- to be, um, like sensual and then I did with Barbara's help I, I made this amazing next step which is and am I feeling those things right now so perfectly sober sitting in a room in the workshop venue asking the part of me that wanted to drink what it wants for me it wants me to feel this and this and this and am I feeling that now yes I am So the, the, the frozen pattern, which we call now a tangle, is a system, it's a closed system in which I only get to feel relaxed, recreative, sensual, if I drink. And then I can also not feel certain other feelings. But I've just broken out of that because by being self in presence with the part that wants to drink, by inviting it to let me know what it wants me to be able to feel if I do that and noticing that I can actually feel those feelings. Now I've already moved beyond that frozen stuck system. I don't have to make any decisions or resolutions. I'm there already. Mm. So we created a, a method at that point, which we now call untangling. It's based on focusing. It's an application of focusing to really stuck life issues.
0: And uh, that was an example. Yeah, great, great. I I love how it brings it alive. And do you feel that the qualities of relaxation or flow, ease, I think you said, um, do you feel like they were a kind of quality of presence that that was supportive and that um, was an antidote perhaps to the pseudo ways you would try and find it through alcohol. And I'm just curious um, if, again, this question of identifying, because, you know, those kind of qualities like flow and ease are qualities you wouldn't want to disidentify from necessarily. They, oh. You want to be those. Right. So there's a re-identification right. with those qualities.
1: Well, back to life wants to live. The qualities of life living forward. The qualities of life living forward are known in the body; they're natural bodily-oriented qualities, and yes, ease, openness, enjoyment, delight, uh, all kinds of things like that. Peace, able to relax, able to be attentive and curious to what's around us. Those are found naturally as the body opens and relaxes, and they're they're the implied next steps many times. So. It's not a matter of needing to disidentify or identify from those feelings, I call, ne- not necessarily calling them positive feelings, because that implies some feelings are better than others, but more that those are the expansive feelings, and they are the natural qualities of being self in presence. But notice, I I was unable to feel them some, for some reason, uh, without the aid of alcohol at that time. And I could then unwind that process and ask the part that wanted to drink what it wanted me to experience when my body responded with these feelings of ease, relaxation, and so on. I could actually have the experience of having those qualities without the intermediary. And now I'm already in a new body. I don't have to make a resolution or some kind of decision. I'm there already. Right.
0: Yeah, that's the key, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's like it's, mm. it's 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 spontaneous, so you don't yeah. have to effort. It's not like I'm, no. going to maintain that. Like it's a new practice. It just what arises. yeah.
1: What I think, and what Barbara and I think is happening is the stoppage I was talking about earlier, where the readiness for the next steps of life, whatever we were ready for, doesn't happen in some kind of severe, and and impossible to get passed away I mean not nobody has everything good happen all the time but if there's a severe stoppage repetitive, it becomes something the body holds as a frozen as a frozenness. In my case I've traced it back to my relationship to my father who was a World War II veteran coming back carrying his PTSD from that, unable to really connect with his young kids and the feeling for me of reaching for him over and over and having him turn away. Mm. uh, My body then carried it, I now understand, as this stoppage. Well, what happens when we have a stoppage, and it's usually early in life, but not always, is that in order to go on, Parts arise to try to solve some of the problems created by the stoppage. And those parts come up with strategies, including the strategy of using some kind of addictive substance, or the strategy of becoming a really good student and working hard and feeling like if you're approved for your mind, then uh, you're a good person. But you're missing the sense of being really loved, being a good student is a substitute for that. So these are just examples of things that humans do because we are creative and resilient. But when there's a stoppage and there's no recovery from that possible at the time, partial solutions, solutions that we can say are from parts of us, not from the whole self, create their own problems because they're not life living forward as a whole one solution might be to drink too much and, or whatever it is for a child, suck your thumb. I was a thumb sucker. Um, and then uh, the other part says, but well, that's a problem. People, people don't like you when you do that. You, you shouldn't do it. So we have, a, we have a doing part and a shouldn't do it part. And then mm-hmm. they fight with each other. And, and that becomes a kind of repetitive stock system where we're pretty far from the original stoppage now. Instead, we've got the problem of thumb sucking or or drinking or whatever it is. But the original problem is sort of under layers, under the layers of the onion, let's say. But we can get there by being in the body, by listening, by creating an atmosphere of curiosity and so on.
0: Mm, Yeah. Um, I'd actually like to ask you about that now because of the the people listening here, coaches, I'm just curious if you could speak into how, um, you know, you said that sometimes um, these ha- it's interesting to you how people block this flow of life. And I'm just curious how we could help our clients, guide our clients into the felt sense, but also what happens when people are not really connecting to it? You know, like what what could be happening then? How might we be able to guide our clients into a space where, where they do connect to that felt sense and the flow.
1: You don't need to tell your clients that you're using a technique called focusing. You can just start using this language. And one of the things you can do is when people are talking about their lives, be aware in your own body as you're listening. And from that inner sense of presence with the person you're listening to you can get the feeling that wait a minute right there that that sounded important the story is flowing past and suddenly wait a minute what Good. and then you can say wow wait a minute something just hit me right here as you were telling me about that that sounded important could we wait a bit longer right there Maybe there's a feel of that. What you said was, uh, I always, uh, never, uh, well, you say back what they said, and then let's wait a while and just let, let you get the feel of that. Is there something you can feel as you say that? So there are a number of ways of inviting the felt sense. That's one of them, is the sense that people have sort of talked their way toward one, and they can pause. People in coaching may be talking about what they want, what they hope for, what they'd like to create, what they, what their goals are, what their ambitions are. But same thing. You can hear something in you rings a bell. Wow. It sounds like you were saying what you always really wanted. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Let's wait longer right there. Let's let the feel of that be here. So we can invite people to feel something. Another thing that you can do is once they feel it, invite them to describe it. I don't know, I, I'm sorry, I can't articulate. It's not, not easy. Wow, well, take your time. That's actually an important moment when you feel something that's hard to describe. Take a little more time right here. That's all right. And then they describe it, and then you repeat their words back. So, so it's a way of in holding an understanding that this will be worthwhile. It's one of the things that's most helpful to people. If you've done it yourself, and I think anybody who helps somebody else do focusing ought to first have done it themselves, been taken through the mm-hmm. process by somebody else or taken a class in how to do it yourself, read a book about it, and so on. You have the faith in yourself, that pausing, slowing down, staying with something hard to articulate, it has this magical dimension that you noticed in my story about the writer's block, where there's more there that we couldn't have gotten to by thinking and by guessing. It's by staying with the feel of it that more can come. So your faith in that is is also People, some people get very emotional. And when people get emotional, that's the ideal time to help them disidentify. I have clients who cry and I, I'm, I tell them that this is a safe place for tears, it's okay. But after a while, maybe a few minutes, I will say, and maybe you can be with that. So I'm, when I say maybe you, I'm speaking to the to the, the self and presence in that person. Maybe you can be with that. I, and by that, I mean the whole feel of where the crying is coming from. And that is an inner relationship that allows company and change to occur within the context of that company. People can cry a long time, but if they can be with the place the tears are coming from, it's not pushing away the tears. The tears can be there as much as they need to. And and I say to my client, and you can be there with them. See how that would be if you are there with the tears. This is, So important when it comes to emotion, because in when I was growing up, there were only two stances toward emotion. Either you felt something and it took you over and you were angry or sad, or you didn't feel it, which is why I come from an alcoholic family background. How do we not feel what we're feeling? (laughs) Well, one good way is to to do addictions. Uh, Focusing when I learned it and I was 22 years old, uh, allowed a third way the feeling can be there as big as it is as much as it wants to be and i can be here too i am with the feeling that is the change process not feeling doesn't really help and and being taken over or swept away or identified with the feeling doesn't really help either it's being with the feeling Allows the next steps to emerge. So you were asking me how we help people. Those are a few ways. What mm. what did, what more did you want to hear about that?
0: Well, well um, I'm just curious because sometimes you might have a client who um, is saying, "I'm not really feeling anything," or you know, there there's a lot of space, and um, you know, maybe it's good then to say, "Well, what kind of anything?" is that? Yeah, we can say what kind kind of
1: space is it? But also, I do think that people have experiences, but they don't have practice in observing or noticing them. So one of the ways people learn to not have feelings is just to not notice. My faith is everybody is feeling something. I remember a man I worked with who said he felt nothing. In fact, he came to me because his wife was tired of asking him how he felt and him saying, I don't know, nothing. (laughs) I need help because she's so mad at me. She says, I've got to be able to answer something other than I don't know. I said, okay. So I invited him into body awareness. I took him through a kind of exercise of feeling his body supported. My, my confidence is there's always something people can feel. So maybe just feeling one hand touching another. Yeah, you can do that. And maybe feeling your body touching the chair. Yeah, you can do that. Okay, so now and, and it went out a little longer than that. So now let awareness come into the middle of your body, the area that includes your throat, chest, stomach, and sensing how it is in there right now. And he said, nothing much, just like usual. And I said, oh, so just like usual in your throat, Just like usual in your chest. Is it the same usual or different? That's It's pretty much the same. Okay. So just like usual in your chest. Just like usual in your stomach. Same usual or different? (laughs) Well, of course, I wouldn't be telling this story if it didn't get somewhere. He said, oh. My stomach is tight. It's always tight. Mm. Ah. So he went on to have a very interesting process. It had to do with how he was asking, he had a lot of expectations of himself that he'd carried from his father and that his tight stomach was about how tense it was to carry all those expectations all the time. It was great. But... The, the point is that people say they feel nothing when they feel something they always feel, when they don't feel what they're expecting to feel, and when they it have not in, already interpreted what they're feeling as unimportant. So with somebody like that, I just try different methods. One of the things I also try, that was one. Another one I try is to say, okay, You're not feeling anything in your body right now. Uh, Maybe there's something, there's something you're feeling like relaxed or peaceful there in your body right now. Relaxed or peaceful. Well, about half the time people say, well, no, it doesn't feel relaxed or peaceful. Ah, see, almost like they were feeling something, but it's so usual and so hard to articulate and so not what they thought we were looking for, it's not until they ask, do I feel relaxed, that they realize, no, I am not feeling relaxed. It's feeling something other than that. Okay, let's articulate that. Well, the other 50% of the time people say they are feeling relaxed. Well, that's great too, because then you can ask to them to articulate more how in particular their are relaxed is feeling for them right now. So anything that gets people sensing and describing, and I definitely want to have an attitude of complete acceptance. Everything they say to me is okay. Because the inner world emerges in safety. When people don't feel anything, it may have to do with not feeling safe. And that's something that means our relationship with people and the rapport that we create with our clients is probably more important than anything else. Does that person feel safe with me? Does that that person feel like I'm not going to judge them? I'm going to welcome whatever happens. I'm not there. Well, that's not easy necessarily to get to. It may take a number of sessions Mm. of, of just them telling me what they're looking for, or what they're hoping for, or how they feel and me accepting those feelings to work toward an atmosphere where they can do that toward themselves, where they can turn toward their own feelings, where they can have their own feelings. But those are some of the things I do with people yeah. who don't feel anything.
0: Really nice. Yeah. And if they're saying like, oh, I don't like what I'm feeling. And is, is that okay to be here? You there, you make...
1: there you go. There so you go. Not include... liking our feelings is another something that's okay to be here. maybe you can say hello to something in you that doesn't like. So now you have uh, a painful feeling in your body and you have something in you that doesn't like it. And both of them are here and you and I can be with both. So, yeah, that's there is an atmosphere of acceptance there.
0: And when when I do that with clients, I just find they can find this sense of at some point they always come to this sense of, Oh, like that's okay you know it, and i'm okay with not feeling okay you know yeah, like and the, oh, and
1: what you just described is that body breath that tells us that we've had uh some something has happened that really was what the body needed
0: Ah, oh, beautiful mm. hey um and we've we've covered a lot and i'm we're at time and i just want to Say I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Actually, that's what I love about doing these podcasts. I just get to ask all these questions that I want to ask you, and I know that our community really appreciate to hear you share the answers to that. And I can just hear the you know the decades of experience you bring into this work as you speak and I'm, I'm grateful we had this time i feel like we could um do a part two at some point in the future there's a
1: well that would be great i already agree to that and i do have right. a uh, a gift for yeah. your audience oh great on, sure on the on the website where you announce the podcast just a a, a free thing that will help them with their clients
0: so great yeah i'd be happy to share that we'll we'll make sure we put that on the podcast page and where can we find out more about the work you do and the trainings you do people might want to right, uh,
1: join right. Us. well the, yeah. the the free gift is called turning obstacles into doorways and uh my website is focusing com.
0: just to say to coaches listening i'm sure that the relevancy of this work is clear to coaching um if not i just want to underline that to people listening now but yeah you were saying um Yeah.
1: Well, it's just a pleasure to be with you. It's just the time has flown by so easy to talk to you. And it's really fun to be able to spread the word and help more people. Even after existing for more than 50 years, focusing is not as well known as it should be. And everybody who discovers it is always saying, why didn't I know about this before? (laughs) So we invite people's curiosity about it.
0: Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.